Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In 1970, the historian Peter Filene wrote that The present state of historical understanding seems to deny the likelihood of a synthesis as convenient and neat as the progressive movement. In their commitment to making sense of the past, however, historians will continue to search for conceptual order. Perhaps, after further studies of specific occupations, geographical areas and issues, a new synthesis will appear. But if that is to occur, the progressive frame of reference, carrying with it so many confusing and erroneous connotations, must be put aside. It is time to tear off the familiar label and, thus liberated from its prejudice, see the history between 1890 and 1920 for what it was. Ambiguous, inconsistent, moved by agents and forces more complex than a progressive movement. So, today on American History 2, we're going to interrogate the idea of the progressive era and the progressive movement, looking into its people, its places and its nature. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of American History 2. My name is Mark McClay um, and before I introduce my co-host Malcolm Craig, I wanted to take this opportunity just to welcome all the new listeners we have received in the last few months since we joined the Recorded History Podcast Network. And while I have you here to ask for the first time in a long time if you could do us a wee review on the iTunes, just so that people can find us a lot easier than they can so at this present moment. But enough with that. Hello, Malcolm. How are you? Morning, Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, enjoying, uh, not quite thematically appropriately, drinking uh, coffee from my Yuri Gagarin commemorative mug, uh, which I should probably have an American astronaut on it for the purposes of this podcast. But I also I understand so. we are joined today, not only by our guest who's going to be talking, but another special guest. I believe your favourite president, Lyndon, is in the house. Yes, yes, I just got a brand new puppy who at any point today could flare up and inter- interrupt this podcast, at which point you'll be taking over all hosting duties. But yes, he is called Lyndon. So if there's, uh, if there's a sudden yelping and barking, it's not Mark, it's his new dog. Just to make that absolutely clear. Perhaps. 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 We never know how this might go. <laughs> anyway, so yes, uh, fantastic. Delighted to be back for a, another episode and also particularly delighted to introduce our guest today, the University of Manchester's Katie Myerskoff. And Katie has been a, a fantastic supporter of the podcast uh, for a long time now and we're absolutely delighted to have her on to talk about her research uh, into uh, progressivism, women, the city in America round about the late 19th, early part of the 20th century. So so welcome, Katie, and can you just give us a very quick rundown about, about your PhD research? 
Oh, yes, I can do, Malcolm, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Uh, yeah, the title of my PhD is Progressive Plans and Urban Realities in St. Louis between 1890 and 1917. So I am right in the ruckus of the uh, fairly complicated period of um, the progressive era. And what I'm interested in is uh, looking at a combination of idealised space and real space. So I'm looking at what city planners, city boosters and progressives in the city believed St. Louis could and should look like and what sort of positive effects that kind of city planning could have on certain parts of the city's population. And then on the flip side of that, I am going to be looking at what actually went on in that space. So I look at struggles to reform citizens and the space they lived in and what happened to the communities who were ignored by progressive reformers. So there particularly, I'm thinking about African-American communities and their own reform efforts. And then finally, looking at how progressive plans were hijacked and used by white supremacists to introduce further segregation measures at the end of my period uh, in residential areas and leisure spaces like swimming pools and things like that. So it's a real hodgepodge, uh, a bit like the progressive era itself, but it means that I get to look at things like the World's Fair, uh, progressive groups, clubs, women and their efforts, and how all this is tied up in notions of race and respectability and um, really kind of how we perceive urban space um, and what it says about about um what we what we want our citizens to be like cool well uh, i look very much to get stuck into hearing about your what you found in st louis but before we do that um i think it's best if we sort of lay out for the listener what exactly the progressive era was but you just told us it was a real hodgepodge so we'll move on to the next question uh no i'll, I'll um but no i do actually want to get a more detailed understanding of what what do we actually mean when we say the progressive era or progressivism? What, what, what do you think that means? Yes, it's, it is really, really complicated and it had many, many different meanings for many different people. But I think essentially the progressive era is about changing people's perception of uh, their environment and what the government can do for them and thinking about needs of the citizens um and yeah i do think it is very very complex i mean when i talk about this with my undergraduates they get very confused i don't know about about yours um because how we think about progressive mentality now is potentially completely different to how it was understood then yeah, in the same way, sort of liberal is completely different to what it meant in the 19th century. I mean, just uh, before, we, what exact years would you peg the progressive uh, era as being? So again, there is lots of debate about this, but I would say roughly between about the 1890s to the 1920s. But maybe as we're going to discuss later, if we really consider women as the driving force of that, we can actually extend the period of the progressive era so that it starts a lot earlier when we're thinking about the development of women's clubs uh, in the 1880s and then extend it even further uh, beyond the 1920s really into the 1930s until the introduction of the New Deal and that kind of thing so it, it really depends upon your definition I suppose. And when we, when we think about progressives in this period because I mean as you pointed out in kind of teaching undergraduates about this you know it's often beholden on us to point out that 
many of these progressives had progressive views of the kind that we'd still recognise, but many of them had deeply unprogressive views, the popularity of you know, race science and eugenics uh, and all of these kind of things. So are progressives, for want of a better term, are they a specific demographic in the United States or are there divisions along lines of class, race, geography, uh, yeah. all of these kind of things? Mm. Well, I think certainly geography, you know, they're appearing mainly in cities. Um, the kind of rural uh, progressives are essentially populists, aren't they? Um, so, yeah, I would say that they're, they're urban, they're in the cities. And potentially, yeah, they could be from all different classes, but mostly I think it's middle class reformers. Now, potentially, there's also business leaders who jump on the bandwagon and they realise that there's so much discontent going on. Do they actually end up shaping this reform in order to avoid kind of an overthrow or, or um, any further problems? So we've got a big mix of people trying to get involved in changing their their social environment. Yeah, exactly. And, and not even just business leaders jumping on the bandwagon. You also have, you know, presidents such as Theodore Roosevelt, which we discussed in the previous podcast, very much was uh, onto the bandwagon jumping um, for his fears of a sort of revolution taking over. But are, are there are there any notable successes that we can look back and go, progressives did that? You know, like just if you were listing them to students to go, this is, you know, what, what we should care about. Yeah. So I think really when we think about the successes, you could maybe divide them up between large and small successes so the large successes are the things like the regulations so this kind of trust busting that Roosevelt kind of gets involved in passage of pure food and drug act and the meat inspection act um, and changing notions of really the function of political authority so things to do with voting um, and and who, who can vote that kind of thing and furthermore child labour laws and things like that so there is lots of regulation that comes out of this um, so I would think that's kind of the large um, successes and then the small successes you know they're often kind of laughed at but maybe beautifying cities uh, creating public parks conservation that kind of thing we're still living in that now aren't we we have really a lot to thank the progressives for in that way and I think as as our conversation maybe later on when we talk about women, that women really provided a kind of welfare state or a welfare system before it existed. So in that way, theirs was a massive success because they helped to save the city. And leading on from that, to kind of conclude our kind of discussion of you know what is progressivism, progressive era, progressive movement, you know, back in nineteen seventy, you know, Peter Filene uh, writes his article, which is, you know, still, I still use it in teaching, you know, his obituary for the progressive movement. What do you, what do you make of his perspective on, on progressivism? And is what he wrote in 1970, is that, is that still valid for historians? Yeah. So when I was reading through, um, his, his famous obituary for the progressive movement, 
I was actually thinking, by Jove, you know, he's, he's got a point here. Um, th- these are some of the things that he might have been right about, that there's a real internal fragmentation within the progressive movement. There's contradictory objectives. You know, we talked about there's some people maybe trying to push uh, business regulation. There's some people who are looking for social welfare. There's some people who are trying to expand democracy. And there's others that are trying to curtail it. And as Malcolm says, you've also got this kind of moral absolutism and nature activism running through all this so there's lots and lots of different mixes and I think also he's got a real point where he talks about when is progressivism is it reflective of a zeitgeist a spirit of the age something must be going on in this period you know why do all these people suddenly care about some of these issues that don't really affect them but they're interested in um, so I think we need to think about changing coalitions and factions. So although I, th- I think he's, he's got a point, there's a number of caveats there with that. He's very concerned about a movement, and I'm not sure whether we would talk about a movement in the same way that he, th- he, he describes it, or if anybody ever actually did. You know, it's not really a kind of coherent movement in that way. Yeah, and just to, just to sort of final add on to that, would you think, is it fair to say that, you know, that perhaps... You know, we say a progressive movement maybe didn't exist, but a progressive era did exist, the sort of spirit you talk about of reform. Do we think that a lot of what happens in the progressive era is a backlash to the excesses of the Gilded Age? Is is that your reading of it, you know, when big business becomes too powerful and there's no regulation, government's in the hands of big business and there's no social welfare, there's all these kind of things, the disparity between rich and poor, huge immigration, that kind of thing. Do you think that's what's going on in the progressive era? Yeah, I think certainly it's it's one of the, the key things that is going on. Uh, Daniel Rogers talks about the idea that at this point, point a lot of middle class reformers kind of suddenly discovered the octopus you know this idea that there's this faceless corporation and all these trusts that are somehow manipulating them from above um so there's there's a real drive then to kind of combat or purify this um commerce and politics yeah cool um so if we move on now from thinking about progressivism as a whole and start to think about women's role specifically um during this era and and before we get into the role they played um during the era i was hoping to first discuss what what was life like for women um at the turn of the 20th century and i'm thinking here you know of the sort of middle to upper class urban women who tended to spur these progressive causes. I mean, how would you characterise what, what 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 day-to-day life was? What was her status in society? Yeah, so I think you're, you're certainly onto something there, that there is that the progressive women tend to be uh, white uh, and middle class uh, or, or even, you know, upper middle class. Uh, they don't work. They might be college educated. Um, they're, they're new women, you know, they're kind of becoming more involved in the city space. And they're often uh, traveling around that city on bicycles, you know, so they're actually even seeing the city space a bit more up close and personal. Um, but I must say as well that this is yet another complication with progressives is that, of course, there's a there's a great deal of reform going on in the African-American community. And again, that that is a kind of middle class women that are driving that. But really, African-American efforts and reform and how it relates to race and respectability certainly could be a podcast in its own right. So <laughs> maybe that's for the future. Can I just add a, a quick, tack a quick question on to 
uh, onto that, before we move on to the, the next question that I have, you mentioned the, the bicycle there. How, how significant, just, how significant do you think the, the advent of, of the bicycle is for, for, for women in particular and their ability to kind of, you know, move about these urban spaces? Yeah, I think it really is. I mean, in St. Louis, there's a huge park. There's lots of um, cycle paths that are put in so women can go out on their own or with their friends. They're not going to be chaperoned as much. But I think it's really about that movement in cities as well, isn't it? We need to think about how do people move through this urban space and what they're seeing and how that affects their motivations and aims as progressive reformers. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, so we always say fascinating. That's a good I know, I know you do. Uh, so, I mean, how do, how exactly do, do progressive women fit into this, this progressive era? Are they central figures or do they find themselves excluded from significant decision making and, you know, significant processes and programs? So I think they are really significant they're paramount i mean in some ways they are the progressive movement uh or era or progressive should i say see again it's so complicated how we talk about this um because they are really driving reform uh social welfare this kind of idea that the government needs to the government and the municipality needs to uh, provide for needs and protection of both children and women and then expanding that out further into thinking about kind of a public arena so really then i mean my vague understanding of this era was you know that what's really dominating you know women's thoughts in terms of in the political arena is you know obviously that the obvious one being the fight for suffrage um but then also along with that um in many ways these two issues were always joined together was uh was the idea of temperance alcohol temperance and then eventually uh, what morphs into prohibition Um so are you saying that this is really you know, that's not the right way to think about what women are doing during this era. They're actually more, they're more focused on local, uh, local issues and uh, and trying to provide some sort of you know you know improvement in life for children and social welfare. Yes, certainly. I mean, I think suffrage is an interesting one because not all progressive women, not all progressive men wanted suffrage. You know, so this is yet another divisive issue. Um, temperance as well, you know, is is pretty divisive. But yeah, so if we think about more uh local issues so women are getting involved in the creation of bathhouses so the built environment developing things like the playgrounds and becoming involved in the playground association where they're really trying to develop children as young citizens you know they're they're the future and fundamentally things like settlement houses are so important you know they're providing the welfare that's missing so people often talk about Jane Addams uh, because of course she was just so important to the era things like dance hall regulations this kind of monitoring of sexuality because a lot of these middle class women are very very concerned about the sexuality of working class women this is the era of women adrift so it's how they can kind of gain back some control and and sort of monitor femininity and sexuality in that way so a uh, couple of questions that, that lead on from that because i mean you know, the, the settlement house movement uh you know with obviously jane adams being a huge figure and ellen star was she the other fi- huge huge figure in the settlement house movement? i'm trying to rack my brains from from uh from teaching this but certainly jane adams is a is a significant figure 
what what provokes the settlement house movement? Is there something that happens that that makes people start considering you know, urban poverty and all these these kind of issues? Uh, and then perhaps we could kind of move on to discussing Jane Adams in slightly more detail. Uh, yes. Um, so really, I think the settlement house movement comes from a perceived problem in cities. You know, they they have grown exponentially uh, by. Um, 1910, there are more than 400 settlement houses in the country. So it's not just Jane Adams, you know, it's going on all over. Uh, but the, the perceived problems of the city, that there's a, a vast amount of immigrants and strangers that are potentially a dangerous element that kind of need to be controlled. Um, and helped, you know, there's there's a big element of, of help and sympathy here. So these settlement houses offer welfare and kind of provisions, um, kindergartens, playgrounds, this kind of thing. So, and so, I mean, thinking specifically of Jane Adams, she kind of looms very large in historical understandings of this this period. Is she as crucial a figure as popular history and popular memory uh, has made out? Or should we also be kind of looking at more unsung heroes of this period? Yeah, I think she, I, I think a bit of both, to be honest. Um, and I think it can be quite hard to find a lot of the unsung heroes um, of, um, of, of the progressive era. And, you know, this might be yet another complication that we have with trying to define progressives is trying to find what they were doing because a lot of this work that women are doing is going going under the radar because they're keeping the city ticking along so uh, i i look at um some women in st louis um and they come out of the club movement and this is something that our, the middle class white women would have joined to um, promote their privilege in a way you know initially initially these clubs are set up to discuss poetry and Shakespeare and they meet up in each other's homes and it's kind of demonstrating what a good hostess they are now in the progressive period this changes towards thinking about welfare and um expanding out their traditional private concerns um, so things like children um, and child, child welfare and education and expanding that out to talk about the public domain do, do you think this is uh, is it driven by guilt do you think over the sort of prosperity they're living in in comparison to the cities I mean I thinking of a sort of famous example of this is um, you know Eleanor Roosevelt was sort of famous for I think round about the time uh, when she when when she was sort of eighteen nineteen or something or when she was supposed to be a debutante or something she was going into the in, into the slums and it was actually her that forced Franklin Roosevelt to actually realise that they existed at all because um, they came from such prosperity. I mean, what do you think is driving these women? Do you think it is a sort of way to appease their own guilt about their own circumstance, or do you think it's something else no i think certainly guilt is playing a part of this i mean if you think about the popularity of uh, the text that the muckrakers are uh, producing why are people drawn to reading these things you know is it that they they're, they're drawn to it in some kind of like salacious way that they want to find out how the literally how the other half live or is it that they're trying to appease some kind of guilt and the other thing maybe to think about you know it's a it's a it's a goodie but 
is an oldie but a goodie is uh, Richard Hofstadter's idea of status anxiety. You know, why did middle class people become involved in this kind of reform? And they're interested in all kinds of reform that doesn't necessarily touch their lives. And is it because that they they're concerned about their position and also that they guilt they feel guilty and that they want to help? There's there's a bit of both going on, I think. Can I just you know pop in? Uh, could we you know briefly? Uh, do you think, well, two things. Do you think there is still explanatory value to Hofstadter's kind of old idea of status anxiety? And briefly for our listeners who might not know what it is, what was, what was Hofstadter's argument regarding status anxiety in this era? Yeah, so Hofstadter was kind of looking at, well, he was very interested in, in paranoid um, kind of psychology of people wasn't he if you think about how he dealt with the populace as well but um, his development of status anxiety was trying to explain why progressives popped up when they did and he thinks that the middle class were kind of squeezed so from above there's this faceless corporations uh, big political parties that are being dominated by Tammany Hall and boss politics and that kind of thing. And then from below, there is a rise of immigrants, um, you know, potentially threatening racial and ethnic others. Um, so they're feeling very, very squeezed, squeezed middle, maybe you could say. And um, yeah, so that, so that they, they want to do progressive reform because it's a way for them to uh, really... Put, um, put a pin on their authority, you know, stamp it down. Um, and I, I, this is what does happen in the Civic League that I study because they're very interested in kind of leadership of this progressive reform. That's fascinating. Um, if if we now move on to, to thinking about the city specifically, which is obviously what you've really chosen to, as a venue for exploring uh, women's role in progressivism, I mean, what is it about the the city and, and the sort of American imagination that is important in this era? Because we're not yet, at least not until 1920, which, you know, as you said, is the real tail end of the progressive era. It's not until then that the majority of Americans live in cities. Until then, it's still a majority rural nation. So what do you think it really is about the city or the whole urban space that that captures the the sort of imagination in terms of where reform needs to happen at this point yeah i think that the city becomes such a worry because it's so evident of the severe inequality that's happening um there's also lots of labor strife you know around the end of the gilded era and into the progressive era um and i think that the idea that everybody lives so close together and they could potentially all be contaminated by these kind of dangerous elements within the city that aren't being controlled at, at the, that point. So business, self-interest, uh, corrupt politicians, and this is a real concern. Can I, I, I wouldn't mind asking a question about parks. Because we mentioned mentioned them at the very start, and it's, it's a really interesting aspect of it. I mean, to, to what extent do you think kind of like urban public parks are an expression of progressive, you know, desires and kind of you know parks as they relate to? Think, I was thinking of the the eighteen ninety three Columbian Exposition, kind of near the start of the progressive era, and is it Frederick Law Olmsted, the the great kind of urban uh, park designer? Uh, 
in the in the United States in that period, you know, designs the grounds for the exposition. To what to what extent? How important do you think public parks and the drive to create these public you know green spaces are as a as a progressive achievement? Yeah, so I'm glad you've mentioned uh, Frederick Law Olmsted because. Uh, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. Uh, also takes up that mantle and becomes really um, very influential in city planning and uh, the progressive movement, pushing this idea that parks are so important. And yeah, um, the idea that parks and boulevards and access. Oh, I think I just heard a little dog. I think I think a dog <laughs> has, uh, has entered the, the podcast. We've now got a fourth <laughs> member of the uh, of the podcast team today. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so that parks would be both healthy and a healthful environment, that it would somehow be a return to nature. And so I think this is another concern with the cities, isn't it? That it's somehow unnatural and it's corrupting. Um, so yeah, there's lots and lots of public parks and my civic league, um, when they're developing their city plans, what they do is they, you know, because they're very interested in data as well. You know, there's a lot of feeling and personal opinion. And then there's also this development of experts and scientific data and measuring and monitoring, which again is another contradiction or potential conflict within progressivism. And so what they do is they look at the population of the slums and they work out sort of almost like per individual how many blades of grass almost they have access to. And they say, you know, this is just not right. We need to develop more more public parks for them. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, kind of goodwill around public parks as well, uh, but they can also be used to control people. Hmm. So, and in, in your own kind of, your own study uh, and the materials we were looking at prior to this, uh, this episode, uh, you've written clearly the expansion of the traditional private concerns of women into the public urban arena provided both opportunities and restrictions. So, um, so firstly, what are these these opportunities that the urban arena provides for women? So, the urban environment uh, it provides them basically to have a political voice before they have the franchise. So, this is something that I think we do need to consider when we're talking about progressive politics is that we need to have a much more capacious definition of what politics is. So that women developing playgrounds and bathhouses, that is an extension of their private concerns, but they are they are being political animals in this way. You know, they're developing their own environment uh, and the environment of others. They're also using this maybe to enforce some of their own elitism and privilege. So, yeah, it's through things like social... Uh, maternalism, this development that the state should look after children and, and, and mothers or potential mothers um, is offering them an opportunity. And also municipal housekeeping, you know, this is from Paula Baker's very influential article about the domestication of politics that women's traditional private concerns um, should be expanded outwards into the public domain. And what were the restrictions? You know, we just talked talk briefly about the, the opportunities. How does kind of the urban arena kind of like restrict uh, women, women's opportunities in this area? Yeah, so I suppose the restrictions come from the fact that they're still very reliant on this kind of separate spheres. 
they're they're using their femininity and their potential motherhood or that they are mothers to expand their concerns but it means that they're always contained by them in a lot of ways so I think that's the first sort of restriction and secondly towards the end of this period that the development of professionals and experts this is this becomes a male sphere and um, and men do not want to give this up and really they capture that from from women um you know this kind of the end of the female dominion as as robin muncie called it and that that then women their voluntary period is over and they're not really able to kind of break into being experts or professionals Cool. So I'm going to try and ask this question while I'm constantly being bitten by some very sharp teeth. Uh-huh. Um, so let's talk a wee bit about your own study of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you know, a city that, you know, at least in the, at least in the imagination, I don't think geographically, but at least in the imagination now is smack bang in the middle of America, you know, flyover country. Um, what happened in St. Louis that was so interesting to this? this sort of line of study of yours? Yeah, so um, I think, was it Malcolm that had mentioned the uh, Columbian World's Fair in 1893? That's kind of what turned me on to all of this, really, uh, because these World's Fairs were absolutely massive and they conveyed ideas about what a perfect city should be, uh, not only with the parks, but the beautiful buildings, the white city, the court of honour, this kind of thing. And I found out that St. Louis um, had a fair in 1904, so it was really through that that I then started to think about St. Louis as a city and it's really an interesting place for anybody who is interested in race relations because it's got a northern outlook but a southern mentality and in my time of study it is a Jim Crow city it's segregated in many ways so this space is being racialized and so there's gendered space there's racial space ethnic space Um, and you know St Louis as well it's a gateway to the west but it looks to the east so there's lots and lots of kind of difficulties with St Louis but also really lots of potential to study some interesting things. And and one of the things I found fascinating about your work, uh, you know, the article you kindly sent us was 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 your discussion of how women made this sort of effort to stress that they they weren't acting politically in what they were doing. No, no, we're not acting politically at all. When in actual fact, as you point out, they're being very political. Uh, I mean, could you could you talk about you know about why they did this and how successful they were in convincing people that this wasn't anything to do with politics? Uh, you know, they weren't interfering in a man's world as it would have been thought of at the time. Yeah, I mean, they have to be very careful, don't they, at this point? Um, so they, yeah, they, they're still trying to hold on to this idea of the feminine, the eternal feminine. Uh, no, we're not political, but of course they are. So things like, say, smoke abatement, they're able to talk about that uh, and criticise male spheres of business and people who are burning their fuels willy-nilly and choking up the city and they're able to talk about that and criticize those businesses because they say it's an extension of our home because that smog is coming into our home and affecting us so you've you've made our home in effect public so we're only acting in response to that so i mean thinking then about now that I think about it, you, you mentioned quite a lot earlier the racial nature of of progressivism and what's going on in these cities. And I don't think we've I don't think we've got into that enough. So before I ask you to round up things, I mean, you talk a wee bit about how race plays a, a, a crucial role. Yeah, I think it does because um 
within the city plans there is a concern about ethnic others um, and I think there's a real drive to kind of make them white in a way and you could argue that potentially some of these settlement houses are trying to do the same aren't they they're trying to Americanize these uh, immigrants um, so there's a way to that's one of the ways that they do that um, and I think really kind of trying to enforce this idea that these white middle class reformers they know best you know that it, it's a it's an expression of their white superiority so uh, I did mention at the beginning that I also look at African-American clubs women uh, and they're doing much the same as as the white women uh, they're very concerned about what, how their community is viewed, particularly as a lot of poor Southern African Americans come up uh, from the South uh, as part of the Great Migration. And so they're, they're concerned. So there's elements of race and class here going on. And one of the things that becomes developed is uh, an interracial committee. And through this committee, um, African-American women are kind of silenced, even though they've been doing all this work. They've been setting up playgrounds and schools and clinics and they're concerned about juvenile centres and the orphanage home that the white progressive volunteer women that are also in this interracial group uh, heavily criticise African-American women and say, you know, as, as much as they uh, appear very dignified and that they seem to have, um, you know, all the right kind of ideas, they, they really have no way to go about this and they've got no clue. So really they need the guiding hand of, of a white man to kind of help them. <laughs> And, I mean, continuing on this theme of, of race, as Mark said, before we get to con- conclusion, I, you know, mentioned, you know, in passing earlier on about, you know, race science and, and eugenics and everything. And that's, those are quite popular subjects. I mean, not all of those who we can kind of lump under the progressive banner, but a significant number of people are very interested in those ideas and it connects in to what you've talked about uh, already. Uh, I mean, to what extent were these ideas of racial science, racial hierarchies, and also ideas about eugenics, how widespread were they amongst those that we can term progressives? Yeah, well, interestingly, when I was looking at uh, some a book that recommends reading for the junior civic league. So the kind of reading material that they're looking at in these playgrounds, uh, there's quite a lot of eugenics reading on there. Um, Herbert Spencer and that kind of thing uh, is on there. Uh, and there's also books called uncle Sam's business that goes into um, the idea of the American colonial interests. Um, so we're, we're pushing ideas about imperialism and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think that's very interesting. And yeah, there's, it, we're looking at sort of different racial categories, aren't we, in this period? Um, and who, the hierarchies, yeah, marking them and who's the best and who's most superior. Yeah, I mean, because there's a lot of crossover of the, the progressive era with the kind of the era of the, the debates about American imperialism. Yes. Yeah. Many, many of the same people are kind of talking about progressive issues and also talking about the, the issues of, of imperialism. Yeah, and of course this gets played out in World's Fairs. So in St. Louis, their World's Fair is really a, a push to um, highlight 
recent American acquisitions in the Philippines. So this is where there is human exhibitions, exhibits, the, the Philippine reservation where people will go and see, um, you know, how, how, how these savages live, this kind of thing. Yeah, and presumably not highlighting the brutality of uh, of American colonial warfare in the uh, Philippines. Yeah, of course, of course. And actually, uh, another interesting point about the World's Fair is that it hosts America's first Olympics. And there is something called the Anthropological Day, where lots of different races are set up against each other. And, you know, it's kind of like who can run the fastest, who can shoot the, the arrow the furthest. And uh, a lot of the uh, competitors, you know, the force to do it, will not play, uh, will not play ball. And so the kind of eugenicists are, are, are foiled. What a lot of good clean fun. That sounds really. horrifying. Uh, it, it, I know, I know. Yeah, it, it's horrifying, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, on the question I almost asked you earlier before we went down to, to talk about racing, I mean, what what do you think you're trying to get across with your study of St. Louis? What do you think are the big takeaways um, from, from this era in progressivism? Yeah, I think the big takeaways are that we should really consider women's role in the progressive era. Uh, the idea that this private and public spheres are quite porous for certain women and certain races and certain classes, um, and that really complicates some of the aims and motivations of progressives. Um, I think that we should think about which city plans were successful and which weren't and why. And so the Civic League have these huge big plans. You know, they want these beautiful boulevards and we want the city buildings all grouped together. None of this ever actually happens because they can never get the ethnic wards to vote for this. So again, you know, this is something else that lots of people don't play ball with the progressives. They don't necessarily want to be uh, reformed or they feel that the the progressive plans are really just serving kind of this central west end privileged group what i believe does uh is more of a success is the the actions that women are taking uh in that they're saving the city they're helping immigrants they're helping children they're helping working mothers Obviously, that comes with a big caveat of, yes, this is to demonstrate their own elitism. Uh, but I think we definitely need to think about the different different city plans and different uses of city space according to gender. And to kind of kind of kind of bring everything back together and going back out to the you know the widest possible angle uh, view of this, you've just talked, I mean, really some fantastic stuff there about the significance uh, of what's going on here. In the very biggest sense. Why are progressives important in American history? And why should we, why should we care about them, their agendas, their achievements? You know, if you had to say, if you had to sum it all up, what, why does this matter? Yeah. Believe me, whilst I've been in my writing up period, I've asked myself this many times, well, you know. We, we, all, we all do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Why do I care about this? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, progressives are very important because they reconfigure ideas about what is politics and what is political action? What uh, citizens should expect from their government and potentially what the government should expect from them? There's, so there's a real and lasting change between government and the citizenship and, and how we define citizens. And I think as well, you know, they're so engrossed in urban space. And I think that we should study this more uh, in greater detail because thinking about 
idealizations of space and what's actually happening in that space reveals lots of prejudices around gender, class and race. And thinking about really social justice and public good as well, you know, we do have um, a lot, we do owe a lot to the progressives, I, I believe. Um, and yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, do, do you think we're living in a new progressive era? You know, people often talk about that uh, with Donald Trump and the, the rise of the 1%, that we're in a gilded era. I, I'm wondering if potentially are we in a progressive era? Ask, ask me on uh, November November the seventh two thousand two thousand and eighteen, and I'll maybe have a, a more <laughs> a more firm answer. But there certainly seems to be a backlash to excess to some degree. Malcolm looks desperate to. Check no, I'm here. just no. That is a it's a genuinely fascinating question because so many people are talking about this just now. Is this a new gilded? You know, people are are so often referring to is this a new gilded age? Or as we talked about in the last episode, are we in a new cold war? And there is so much, what is fascinating for me at the moment is there's so much reflection on previous periods in American history. In public, which I think is in some ways good that people are reflecting back on the historical themes and trends that have led to where, where we are now. But I would, uh, well, I'd really hesitate to answer that question. Are we in a new Gilded Age? Are we in a new progressive era? That's really difficult. And, uh, as a as a historian, such has been the the trauma of the past couple of years that I've I've firmly retreated into the warm, comforting embrace of history, and I'm resolutely refusing to even countenance anything to do with the modern world, and the, and the present day. And I'm just like, yep, no, 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 I'll I'll stick in the past, the 1970s and the 1980s and the Cold War era. I'm really comfortable with that at the moment, and the present day. I'm yeah. It's too traumatic for me. It's too traumatic at the moment. Oh, oh, the good old days when the threat of nuclear war just loomed over everyone. What a great time! To, to be honest, when you stood on the brink of nuclear Armageddon between the United States and the Soviet Union, at least you knew where you stood. You, you knew where you were. Uh, nowadays, it's, it's everything's up in the air. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a distrust of government. There's a distrust of this kind of big corporations. You know, look how much people are now fearing things like Facebook. Um, and I think this kind of social activism is certainly taking hold again. And the idea that potentially you could do something to change your environment. So whether that's cutting down on your plastics um, or helping your neighbourhood out by, you know, mending that broken window before everything goes downhill. Um, there's this kind of idea, I think, swirling around that we're all in this together in some way. Do you think there's uh, some kind of, I mean, but it is, I mean, when you, when you talk about kind of a, a new progressive era and obviously your research on, you know, women in the progressive era, I mean, that's an interesting parallel with the, the Me Too movement about where, you know, women's voices are becoming rightfully so much more prominent because of all, all these issues that come in. Do you think that's a kind of an important parallel between the two periods? Yeah, do you know, um, to my shame, I hadn't actually thought of that. But uh, there is an interesting parallel in that who gets to speak for women? You know, I think in this kind of me, hashtag Me Too um, and who is who is doing it who is being believed who is getting the publicity um and i think again it's kind of white women isn't it they have that privilege that they're speaking for for a lot of women mm. yeah i mean maybe this should be rather than a new progressive era maybe it should just be called the white guys can't we just shut the hell up for a while <laughs> era 
<laughs> I'll get off my high horse I now. I know, I know. On that note, on that bombshell, Lyndon is currently Lyndon is currently telling me he needs fed. Ah. Uh, so, so we better wrap this up. Um, but Katie, thanks so much for coming on. That was a that was a wonderful discussion. I really enjoyed learning um, about your thoughts on progressivism. And yeah, as with all these things, I'm already going to be rewriting some of my lecture notes for our American History survey based on this uh, to bring in some of the stuff that you that you've told us today. So, thank you so much for that. That was great. Oh well, thank you for for having me. I'm uh, I'm your number one fan, so this is a dream come true. <laughs> well, no, well, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. That's brilliant. Thank you. Cool. And thanks to all your listeners for well listening, and uh, we'll be back as always next month. And until then, have a great time. Cheerio. Goodbye.